मत भगवत गीता की जाए कोर भक्त बिंद की जाए मॉर्निंग एवरीवन सो वी बीन डिस्कसिंग फ्रॉम भगवत गीता फ्रॉम चैप्टर 6 अबाउट अष्टांग योग एंड वी रीड अ फ्यू वर्सेस कंक्लूडेड लास्ट नाइट विद दिस 7 एंड वी डिस्कस्ड इट ओनली ब्रीफली सो आई कंटिन्यू from there this morning Krishna is speaking about two ends of the yogic spectrum <coughs> directly about astanga yoga but it applies to and in some respects as we've been discussing the bhakti yoga as well and those two ends are the beginner and the uh, adept or the advanced yogi and um This verse we concluded with is one of the verses where he's describing a, a yogi who has attained. And again, as I mentioned the other night or yesterday, this was last night. Um, this is in a way a kind of a follow-up on Arjun's question at the end of chapter two. Chapter two is a, is a chapter in which a large, to a large extent, the contents of the entire Gita are summarized. and um there in that uh, chapter towards the end arjuna asks krishna a question what's the question who knows relative to our discussion here he asks yes how to control the mind that's like a drifting cloud no wrong <laughs> No, he asks uh, how to understand the self-realized soul. How does he walk? How does he sit? How does she talk? Move about or, or not move about and so on. Krishna Arjuna is looking for some, some kind of objective criterion you know, which he can know. And um Krishna does give him that to an extent. and here he also as i say he he continues along those lines speaking about the symptoms <coughs> really about the the nature of the invisible life so to speak of a great uh, and advanced yogi i say invisible because he's speaking about his inner reality which determines his or her state whether they be advanced or are not advanced krishna said that who doesn't have an inner reality who's not at heart a sacrificer and hasn't put that entirely in place and lit the fire as he said and done the ritual so to speak he's speaking metaphorically lit up and lit up lighted up lit lit up lightened up ignited the inner landscape illumined the inner landscape through sacrifice the person goes to external motions without that is not a yogi and and then when but but if we were to speak about that inner landscape it's in it's, it's somewhat invisible isn't it so arjuna has asked for objective criteria and our krishna tried to give it but if you study what he talked about it's kind of hard as well how we see that person is fixed in their mind and they're not distracted and and so on. and he goes on here to talk about samadhi the nature of samadhi and so forth which is is really difficult for 
the average spiritual shopper in the marketplace looking for a good guide to ascertain to what extent he or she is in in any degree of samadhi or attains that or, or as it will be discussed or is practicing the culture of that and so forth which is also described later in the 12th chapter of the Gita with regard to bhakti and we'll see as we go on how the two are, how it's corresponding with this description of yoga astanga yoga because again after all they're both yogas and so there are some similarities as well as while there are differences. I guess it's worth noting that with regard to bhakti, particularly, and the inner life of the devotee, while there are descriptions of such, and they are basically a more detailed description than given in the Gita of, again, the invisible life of the uh, uh, advanced devotee, there are also symptoms that have been given that are observable, very observable in the case of the devotee, that are external, that should correspond with that internal condition. So I guess you could say, and I'll, I'll we'll try to get to that, I think that will come up as we discuss, we've come to the section discussing samadhi, which we're, we're approaching here. I think that we, it's another way perhaps in which we could say that bhakti is a little more accessible and, and uh, user friendly and readily understandable. Symptoms, the preliminary uh, kind of symptoms of bhava. Bhava corresponds with this, we'll discuss it, sampragyata samadhi, this leading to us sampragyata samadhi and, uh, Particip- full participation in the Leela of Krishna within and so forth. So uh, so here, at any rate, the subject is a little bit different ostensibly. Again, it's Astanga Yoga, not Bhakti Yoga. And who, what is the focus of the Astanga Yogi as compared to the focus of the Bhakti Yogi or the Bhakta? What's the focus? Yes. Uh, Astanga Yoga focuses mainly on physical physical control and physical enlightenment as Bhakti Yoga does the same in in a, in a, in a psychic level. Mm, uh, some truth to that, in, but... In, in, if, you, if, you, if you really divide the two of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me address that. It's not... It, I can see why you answered that, and that's good. It's not the exact answer I was looking for when I said the focus. I mean, what is the devotee focus on? in terms of concentrating his mind and what does the yogi focus on in terms of concentrating his mind. But with regard to your answer, which was um, good, here there, in Astanga Yoga, there is a physical aspect of Astanga Yoga that is stressed, that's not stressed in Bhakti Yoga, as you said. But there is also a psychic aspect that is addressed in Astanga Yoga and the spiritual aspect as well. And in, and in Bhakti, of course, there is a spirit, is primarily a spiritual uh, focus. So, uh, just to clarify that, but in terms of the answer I'm looking for, any ideas, Kishangi? Maybe the Ashtanga Yoga is concentrating on Paramatma. That's right. 
on Bhagwan. Bhagwan. So Paramatma and Bhagwan. These are two features of the Absolute. Here, you know, it is mentioned the Paramatma. For the first time in the Gita, the word Paramatma is used, although the Paramatma is referred to earlier at the end of the fifth chapter, uh, Sarvaloka Maheshwaram. Fifth chapter, of course, is ushering us into this sixth chapter. And appropriately, the Paramatma is mentioned. Krishna says that uh, he identifies himself with the um, the controller of the worlds, Sarvaloka, uh, all the worlds, the Ishwar. This is the Paramatma. Here the word is directly used. Krishna is describing the advanced yogi. He says what? Jitatmana prashantas, yeah, Paramatma Samahita. A person who has conquered the mind, advanced yogi, and is thus peaceful, is poised in realization of the Paramatma. So, this is a big topic, Paramatma. Jiva Goswami has dedicated an entire treatise in his sixfold treatise, Sat Sandarbha. One of the Satans, the one of the Sandarbhas is called, uh, you can guess. Well, that's the wrong guess. <laughs> Called the Paramatma Sandarbha. Exactly. And uh, while the Paramatma is not our focus as devotees, but Bhagawan is, nonetheless, um, it's important for us to understand the Paramatma. Otherwise, why has he dedicated an entire treatise to the Paramatma? And what connection do we have with the Paramatma? We're seeking a connection with Bhagawan we already have some connection with the Paramatma. And we're seeking to break it. Or we could say we're seeking to extend it by extending it from Paramatma to Bhagawan because Paramatma is a partial manifestation of Bhagawan. Paramatma means Paramatma. Atma means many things. It means body, it means mind, it means more readily the self, the soul, the unit of consciousness that we are. And the Paramatma is the then kind of the super soul. Figuratively, the Paramatma has been described as residing within the heart, the size of the thumb. Everybody's thumb is probably a different size, so he's a little bit differently sized, as is everyone's heart. This is just a figurative explanation. Standing on the lotus of the heart with four arms and... uh, beautiful complexion and so on and so forth. And uh, this figurative description of the Lord of the heart. It's the heart, the Lord who presides as as the uh, oversoul of one particular body and to extend from the microcosm, microcosmic perspective to the macrocosmic perspective. He is the one that presides as the soul of the universe. If the universe has a soul, it's uh, the oversoul, it's the Paramatma, directing the wanderings of some of the other souls, externally from the macrocosmic point of view, behind the, the power behind all the devas and the gods and goddesses and the functions of nature and so forth, which are identified with gods and goddesses in a figurative and poetic sense. And in the philosophical and metaphysical sense, in terms of those forces having consciousness or life behind them, Life and person being, in a sense, uh, synonymous. 
not that they're mechanical and uh, processes and uh, material uh, alone. So microcosmically, he's the Lord in the heart, and if we extend that further, he's said to be inside every atom. So he's Vishnu. Vishnu is a name for the Paramatma. Vishnu means all-pervasive. One time as a young man, Pujapad Sridharmarsh was interested in, in, in God, and one of his uncles, I believe, told him, why spend so much time with interest in God? If he does exist, he's very far from here. And uh, I do believe that he exists, but he's not really much much involved with what we do down here. So better to focus your energy here and so forth. And then he said, uh, and, and, and wherever he is, you know, we, we can't see him. And Shudermash replied, my perspective is that is there anywhere where he is not? There is nowhere that, he, that he's not. So this is uh, the idea of Vishnu. It's a kind of a, ours is a kind of a, um, a, uh, a pan, to use a Western Christian or Western, I guess, theological terminology, which might be helpful. As soon as we come from the West, and some of us may be schooled and with, along these lines. And maybe a term coined by Meister Eckhart, I think, perhaps. Uh, I think he was um, excommunicated from the Catholic Church for that. But. Anyway, the idea that God is the world and beyond the world and independent, separate from the world at the same time, it's a similar kind of idea. So there's the Chintubeda Beda of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. The world is the God, God in that it is his Shakti. And his Shakti is not independent of him, so it's one with him. Like heat and light are the Shakti or the power of fire, and they're one with the fire. If you're close to the fire, if you're, if you're in the proximity of the fire, you feel... It's energy, heat, and light. They're not separate from the fire, but we can talk about them as differently. There's the fire, and there's heat, and there's light, and so forth. Jiva Goswami has given an example, something like this, to explain his metaphysical um, worldview that was embodied in the ecstasy of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So, at any rate, we're in the world, and we are identified in perhaps more ways than we realize with the Paramatma feature, although our ideal and our objective and our focus is Bhagawan, and although Paramatma is a partial manifestation, sometimes we may speak about him in, in ways that might appear unbecoming to the devotees of Vishnu, who have such regard for the, for the Vishnu, the Paramatma, the world, soul, and who's everywhere, and so forth. We, we uh, are not uh, really critical at all of any manifestation of divinity, but we want to make some distinction for the sake of extolling the virtues of Krishna Bhakti in particular and the intimacy with the Godhead that it affords us. The Paramatma is uh, very different than Sri Krishna. And um, as I say, it resides figuratively in the heart for the sake of meditations, yogis are trained to meditate on the Paramatma, to visualize the Paramatma seated in the heart as if the size of a thumb standing on a lotus. So for, for, the, for the sake of fixing the mind, an object is given. And we may note from the Gita something important here. What is that? That the object is not arbitrary. There are some people who say that the object 
of meditation is arbitrary. Pick anything. In fact, I read one Gita commentary by a yogi. He said, you can meditate on a cockroach. It doesn't matter as long as you fix your mind on something. I had to differ with him. <laughs> uh, here is the object upon which we are told in the Gita that the yogi is to focus on is the Paramatma. And the descriptions of such are given in Bhagavatam and other texts and so forth for the sake of this kind of visualization. And so this is not our focus. I have a picture in the room I'm staying in. It looks, it's like an old poster of uh, something, I guess, some maybe, I don't read the Finnish, or I guess there's some Swedish on there too, I'm not sure, but I think it's talking about some, some type of a museum exhibition of uh, Indian theology and culture. And uh, one of the pictures is of Radha and Krishna. The big, they're big posters from some years ago. And the other one is of Hanuman. Hanuman is the monkey devotee of Ram. And he has, his, his, he has some pearls around his neck, and they're broken at the bottom. They're hanging loose, and the threads are sticking out. His hands are here, and his chest is being torn apart right where he's by his own hands, to get at his heart. And inside there, instead of seeing the organ of the heart, or instead of seeing the Paramatma, who's there, we're seeing Sita and Ram, who are his Ishta, his, his Devata, his, 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 his focus in Bhakti. He's a Bhakta. He's not a yogi, not an Astanga yogi, Hanuman. So he was absorbed in bhakti, in devotion to, in love for Sita and Ram. And they have taken the place in his heart and replaced the Paramatma, if you will. There's a nice statement by Lord Brahma in Brahma Samhita. He says, Yam shamasa premanjana churita bhakti bilochanena sandasadeva ridayeshu bilokayanti Yam shamasundaram achintyaguna swarupam govindamari purusham tamaham He's talking about the devotee of Krishna who sees with premanjana. Premanjana. Premanjana means eyes of love. With eyes of love, he or she, the devotee, sees yam shama sundaram. Achintya guna sarupam. Premanjana tarita bhakti vilochana sandasadeva hridayeshu vilokayam. Hridam means heart. Within the heart, he sees sham sundaram. Achintya guna swarupam who has inconceivable achintaguna swarupam, an inconceivable uh, nature, uh, qualities, form, and, of course, lila, ma, lila madurja, venu madurja, rupa madurja. These are the specialties of Krishna, even above the Narayan Bhagavan manifestation of the Godhead, the sweetness of his lila, the sweetness of his fruit, the sweetness of his form, the sweetness of his devotees, prema madurja, endowed with a special kind of love and so forth. And this kind of prema madurja, it causes him to appear in, his, in their heart. Like Mahaprabhu said, Ainanda tanuja kinkaram patitamam vishamevavam buddho. In the Shikshastakam, he said, I want to become, I want to live in the house of Nanda Maharaj. I want to be married to his son. Mahaprabhu's Chaitanya is speaking in the mood of Radha. He's, he's realizing in the Shikshastakam in a progression 
the ideal of his, of his devotion, the son of Nanda Maharaj. And with that son of Nanda Maharaj, a corresponding type of bhakti, here he's in, he's in, in Sringarasa, conjugal love. He's saying, I want to live in the house of, of Nanda Maharaj. He's referring to Krishna in relation to his, his, his father, who will be Radha's father-in-law, is the, is the ideal. And in those days, in that culture, the woman would move into the house of her husband, live with her, her, his, with her in-laws, with his parents. So this is what I mean then by replacing the Paramatma. And that replacement is, is course, is, is not just an ideal of worshipping Bhagwan Sri Krishna in a particular way, but the practical uh, result of doing so that involves in the beginning the removal of things from the heart desires, aspirations, and a worldliness that is presided over by the Paramatma. Paramatma is presiding over and our ability to acquire, to possess, to enjoy uh, the world and so forth is dependent upon the sanction of the Paramatma. He's uh, standing by as a as a witness, giving the sanction, some some freedom is there for us. But his sanction is required, nonetheless, for us to realize the, the results of our choices, our minute uh, freedom. So he's a little removed. He's right there, so to speak, this manifestation of the God with us in this world, but a little removed, a little aloof, not willing to override, so to speak, our free will. Not that Krishna is, not that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is, but they come close to it. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu comes close to overriding our free will by his magnanimity. So it makes it very difficult to exercise our will in a, in a contrary way to his, contrary to or against or to move away from his dispensation. So generous, so kind, so high, so deep, yet so broad far-reaching, generous, user-friendly, as we're describing bhakti and so forth. Paramatma was not making a big effort like that. He said, hey, you want to enjoy the material life? Go for it. Here's the facility. You want to forget? I make it possible, he says. You want to remember me? I make it possible also. It means also that by his will we can go to sleep at night. By his will, we can wake up and remember that we're we have a an identity that's lost and we lose sight of in, in deep sleep. So we are very dependent upon him, and we are very connected with him with regard to our desires in this world. In fact, with regard to um, our source, we are very connected with him because he is the source of the jivas in this world, in Goloka, the abode of Krishna, the Paramapaikuntha, the supreme spiritual realm, so to speak, where there's intimacy between the finite and the infinite, that we call love. It's called aprakrita. It looks mundane, prakrita, but it's very different in reality. In this plane, souls 
for the participation in Krishna Leela are manifested from Baldev. Some from Radha, from Madhuri Rasa, for Vatsali Rasa, for Saki Rasa, and a special kind of Dasi Rasa there, from Baldev. Baldev expands as the Mahas Sankarshan, Mul Sankarshan, expands Parshada's attendance for Narayan in the Vaikuntha. This Musankarshan expands as Mahavishnu. Just as Baldev has a realm and jurisdiction over the Sandini Shakti, the existence of the Dham, so the Musankarshan, Sankarshan coming from manifesting the Vaikuntas, and then the, the Vishnu coming from manifesting existence, the world, material world, and presiding over that. And he's not one to be alone. Like Prabhupada used to say, Krishna's never alone. He's always with some devotee. So, Paramatma may be alone, but he wants to become, he becomes many. Of course, we're speaking about it in terms of time and language, but these are, this is, it doesn't happen at a particular time. But the one becomes many, like sparks are many from the, from the, from the fire. So, the point is what? That these manifestations of the Lord are they expand different types of souls. That's what they do. So Vishnu does it also. Where does he do it? In his realm, in his area that he has jurisdiction over. That's the material world. Within his leela. What is his leela called? The leela of uh, Narayan is, the, is that of Paravyam, of the Vaikuntha. It, it has a leela, it has a it's a play, a divine play, and there's and in, therefore there are players. There's interaction in Dasya, in Shanta, in one half of Sakya. Shanta means neutral, it means passive love and adoration, the beatific vision, something like that, to use a Catholic term. Dasya means active service, like Hanuman. Saki means friendship. There's half friendship. There's a reverential type of friendship in Vaikuntha. And these types of loving exchange are what constitute the Leela there. Loving exchange with Narayan. And then you go to Goloka, the Param Vaikuntha, and you have a special kind of Dasya. Full face of Sakya. Intimate friendship. And Vatsalya, also parental love, and conjugal love, Madhurya, Shingar, romantic love. This is why, the way, I should say, in which Rupa Goswami is analyzed to come to the conclusion that Krishna is Swam Bhagavan. He's the source of even of Bhagavan Narayan. The Vaikuntha Leela comes out of the Krishna Leela, not otherwise. Because it's within it, there is, there, there is something that's not... Uh, found in Vaikuntha, something more. So, for the sake of this Leela, then Baldev is, is uh, governing over the Sandini Shakti, the existential potency. He manifests souls, and in his expansion, manifests souls in his realm, of the Paravyoma Vaikuntha. And the Mahavishnu has a realm, and he has a Leela, too. What is the Leela of Mahavishnu, of Vishnu, Mahavishnu called? Who knows? In English, what? the world, Leela. 
It's kind of like creation lila, manifesting the world. It's called Shristi lila. Shristi lila. So he manifests the world. Shristi. And it's not just a big old empty place. It's a stage for his, his, uh, kind of, uh, drama. It's kind of, he's kind of aloof in the drama. It's kind of up in the balcony. Although he's there on the stage too, invisibly. He's everywhere, but kind of invisible. He's, he's fully involved, but, uh, he can go unnoticed at the same time. And so for the sake of Leela, there must be souls, right? It's not just he's having a Leela interacting with matter. So the one becomes many. This is the dream of Vishnu, as it's depicted. One becomes many, out of joy. No purpose to the world. That Vishnu is full of joy and he expresses his joy. Because these Shaktis exist, Jeev Shakti, which souls are constituted of, Maya Shakti, that the world, matter is constituted of, the intermixing of the two, the world and the jivas, this is the, um, is brought about by Vishnu, by Paramatma. This is his Leela, Shristi Leela. So some souls are manifest from the Paramatma, and guess who they are? That's us. They're called Nityabhada. Means that they have since 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 a time without beginning, they have been um, circling in samsara. Samsara means going round and round, birth and death, birth and death, birth and death, and then the death of the world. With the inhaling of Vishnu as is depicted, then the birth of the world, with his exhaling, and so many births and deaths, births and deaths within that. All, on, all they are all the same thing. Sleeping is death. Mm. Your death at, at the at old age is death. There's the death of the world, and the rebirth. So all the same thing going on on different levels. At night you go to sleep, the world closes down. Again it comes. At death the world appears to close down, but because you have desire, that's why you woke up in the morning. Because you had something to do. So when the, when the body closes down, still you have desire means you're still here. The vehicle has run out of gas, but you still have some place to go. So you need another another vehicle, so there'll be another birth. And then all the vehicles will run out of gas, and Vishnu become tired of the whole thing, goes to sleep, and all goes back into him. He wakes up again and starts it all over again. That's how it's depicted. So the world, Bhutpa Bhutta Paliyate, it's coming and going, coming and going. F forever, with no beginning. And the whole process has no end, but the process for you and I can come to an end. And that involves the intervention of Bhagwan within the world of Paramatma, who comes through the Paramatma into the world, paying tribute to him also. Bhagwan comes as avatar, descends, checks in with the world soul, Mahavishnu, and enters the world of time and space and conducts himself in such a way as to attract us out that we can meet our Maker and more. We can come to know our Source as Paramatma and then meet Him personally as Bhagwan. 
because Paramatma was not so much available for personal personal meetings. Closest you get is through the yoga, Paramatma. I guess they get stuck there with Paramatma Darshan, beatific vision of the Paramatma. Highest possible achievement in this regard is the Shanta Rasa, peaceful Rasa. Uh, it's an, as again like the beatific vision. This can be extended to Narayan and Vaikuntha and so forth, but that requires yoga mixed with bhakti or pure bhakti. The situation of the yogi generally is something, their samadhi is a little different. But their point of focus is Paramatma. We have a connection with Paramatma as I'm describing, but we want to kind of um, transcend that connection. Remove the Paramatma from the heart and put Radha Krishna, Ram Govinda, Sita Ram, in the case of Hanuman, in the heart. In order to do that, through Guru and Parampara, we get the ideal, we have our focus, then we apply ourselves in such a way that the world comes out of our heart. Once the world that the Paramatma presides over comes out of our heart, then why shall he remain there? Rather, that person through whom, through whose connection, that world has come out of our heart, he will come into our heart. You understand? Because we put our focus on Krishna and we do it in a real way. There was a fellow in Los Angeles many years ago living in the temple long, long time ago. Must have been about almost 40 years ago. And um, we were just young, like some of you, younger than some of you, devotees. And um, Prabhupada was bringing this to the West for the first time and so forth. So the idea was to always think of Krishna, never forget Krishna. So, so this guy had a flute, and those days we listened to just about anybody who could stay in the temple for a while. <laughs> it was like the, it was like a transcendental crash pad or something like that. And um, there were a lot of people dropping in and a lot of people dropping out in those days. <laughs> so uh, uh, this guy had a little flute, and um, he put a picture of Krishna on the end of the flute. And he would play the flute like this, and then he would look at the picture of Krishna, and that's all he would do. He would walk around the block, around the temple. If you asked him to clean a pot or anything like that, he said, I'm remembering Krishna. Uh, you asked him to sweep the floor or anything else, no, he would just go walk around the block. And, and of course, his circumambulation got larger and larger. He's out there somewhere now, <laughs> going around and around. <laughs> he isn't forgetting about Krishna in any practical way. The idea is not to see Krishna. That's not the teaching. The teaching is to serve, to serve Krishna. Hmm. Seeing Krishna and be seen by him. If you act in such a way that Krishna will want to see you, then you will be able to see him. But simply trying to see Krishna, that means for my own enjoyment. No, that is not bhakti. It's not an eye exercise, that he's there to gratify your eye. What, what will you see then? With eyes and heart of enjoying spirit, how will you see who? He who? Atashi Krishna Namadi Nabhagudgrahimindre Sevamukhi Jivado Svayamevas Pratyata Who cannot be seen with material senses, who cannot be experienced with material senses. 
in material senses means that enjoying ego, our, our bodies made of senses. And there's an identity, an I-ness, a sense of I derived from that ego. And if we were to describe the, that ego in a word, it would be enjoying. To put it a little less colorfully, exploiting, taking. The enjoyer is the taker. Someone's providing, right? Giving. And the enjoyer, the Epicurean, is taking, eating, tasting, and getting fatter at the center and more uncomfortable. <laughs> But the true center, like Krishna, yeah. he can take and take, and he still remains medium size. <laughs> Never becomes uncomfortable, because that taking that he does is all redistributed throughout the rest of the body, nourished to nourish all souls. The fellow said to me that, well, what is the... Your, uh, he told one of our monks that your God is Krishna, he's just enjoying... And my God is Christ, he's sacrificing. It's obvious who's the real God. Sacrificing, setting an example, and Krishna's just enjoying eating like anything and dancing with other people's wives called gopis and so forth. So I explained, if there is a sacrificing manifestation of the Godhead, there has to be an enjoying manifestation of the Godhead to whom the sacrificing is being given to. And that is Krishna. Christ exemplifies some sacrificing. Not that we don't have that in Gaudiya Vaishnava. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is the Godhead in a sacrificing mood, in, in the position of a devotee, teaching. Krishna coming to teach sacrifice and self-giving, love. His color turns from sham to gaur, and he's a giver. So, But on the other end of the spectrum, if there's a giver, there must be a, a, an appropriate taker, an enjoyer. And this, if you study this, is Krishna. He's, he's depicted... The center is depicted as the enjoyer. But the result of his enjoying is that, is that everyone's benefited because he actually is the center. So you actually find the center and give there. The center of the body in terms of food intake is the stomach. If you give the food to the stomach, then it will be distributed everywhere else. If you give it only to your hands, then it's not going to nourish the whole body. You have to find the center. So... When we become, through Guru Parampara, means through the simple succession of gurus, we come in touch with this idea. When we come in, come, in, come in touch with the with the particular feature of Bhagwan, Sri Krishna, for example, and his Braj Lila, his Lila in, in, in Vrindavan, then we this becomes our focus, right? We are focusing on Krishna. And while we're focusing there, we're focusing appropriately. And we're focusing on how to be seen by him. Seeing him is the samadhi. Being seen by him means to see him. He reveals himself. He takes a good look at you and you can look back. This is the one end, right? The samadhi. And the other end, the beginning end, is to act in such a way that he will want to see you. Just like we're learning here about yoga. The end is the sitting, but the beginning is the acting. You have to act in such a way that you can sit. You have to act with the spirit of sacrifice so that the heart becomes cleansed of desires, which are the things that keep you moving. And to the extent that they reduce, you can actually sit peaceably, peacefully and focus your mind on something that's more meaningful than things. The most important things in life are not things. 
it's you. And if we look at you, we have to look to your source. That's the Paramatma. That looking is yoga. And that, that looking is not just getting a new pair of glasses or something or having your vision checked. It's not an eye exercise. It's a change of consciousness, which is really determining what we're seeing anyway, right? The tiger sees a young girl as, hmm, I love her. He was loving one. He wants to devour her. The young boy sees her. I love her in another way. Uh, sage sees the young girl. I love her too. But then he's thinking it very differently. He's seeing something very differently than, than a young boy or a tiger. So the consciousness is the eye by which we see and perceive. And it has a color. Now it's colored according to the modes of nature. If we place it, it's like a crystal. So it, it takes the color of what you place it next to. If you take a crystal and put it next to a red rose, it'll become red. So you place that crystal before Krishna, Mahaprabhu called the mirror of the mind. Turn it towards Krishna, then it will reflect a particular image. When it becomes cleansed of the coloring of the modes of nature, then it becomes pure, and then it is focused next to Krishna, immediately Krishna. And an identity, corresponding identity. To see Krishna means you have to have a corresponding identity to see him. To be seen by him is to see him, to get his attention. When the heart is pure, that happens very quickly. The glory of bhakti extends also in not only terms of its height, in terms of its generosity. Its generosity is that he becomes comes before you through the grace of Guru Parampara, even when your consciousness is colored by the modes of nature and you're full of material desires. Still he comes before you. And so when we focus on him then in the context of bhakti, despite our impure condition. And when we focus properly, it means we we act accordingly. There's a corresponding action that um, constitutes focusing. It's not just put the Krishna picture on the end of the flute and walk around the block, right? To think of Krishna. There's something to do. Krishna's been advocating here for the beginning yogi, there's something to do. So, there's service to be done. It's active. And by acting in that in relation to that and so forth under good guidance, then gradually, gradually, you can come to actually being seen. You're acting in such a way that he wants to see you. And if he wants to see you, then there will be no obstruction for you seeing him. If he wants to see you, that means he wants to be seen also. If he doesn't want to be seen, there's no question of seeing him by any mechanical process. That's why yoga as described here and in the Yoga Sutras, as sophisticated of a method as it is of becoming aware of subtle energies and so forth and making a connection, excavating the lost connection with our source. It's a very systematic, sophisticated and scientific method, really scientific in that it has a, there's a process to it. There's, a, there's a, things that you do and you get results and so forth. It's very sophisticated, subtle science, if you will. Despite that, you cannot glimpse the Paramatma without his grace, without, we need without some bhakti in the context of your yoga. That comes out here in, in, in this, this chapter. So if the point being, if he wants us to be seen, he wants to be seen, 
then he will be seen, otherwise not possible. So you think about these things, and then you start to understand, well, why not? Bhakti seems to be the way to go here. A little bit of bhakti takes me as, the, as, as far as I can go in yoga. What if I have all bhakti? What kind of yoga will that be? What kind of connecting force will that be? Force of love and affection and so forth. So when we properly focus on our ideal, Radha Govinda, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, we do that appropriately. That's called that work now that, that affords samadhi later. Then the world will come out of our heart. Who is Paramatma? He's the oversoul of the world. So if the world is no longer in your heart, there's no place for him then anymore. And what has come to replace him as the world comes out of your heart when you do it in bhakti like this, is that the, the world of Golok starts to come into your heart. And Krishna appears there then, as he did for Mahaprabhu, the son of Nanda Maharaj, and so on. So we have some connection with Paramatma. It's, it's significant, and it's uh, there's a whole Sandarbha, as I mentioned, of Jiva Goswami, a whole treatise dedicated to understanding the Paramatma feature of the Absolute. It should be understood, this feature of the Godhead, comprehensively by the Bhakta, inasmuch as he or she understands through love Bhagwan, and Paramatma is a partial manifestation of Bhagwan. Paramatma is a kind of a partially a, the personal manifestation of divinity. He has form, he has some qualities. Leela is very limited. It's hard for us even to think of the material world as Leela from our perspective. But it is from his perspective, and that's the perspective we're trying to get. But when we compare, Leela means divine play. When we compare that to the Braj Leela, for example, then it's, it's quite. Uh, Quite different. I guess there's there's a semblance of it in that it's a reflection of that. That way, there's some similarity. And so, as I said, if we study humanity, we can we can understand the other end of the spectrum and divinity. There are some similarities. But this then is the is the paramatma who is understood by the devotee, as is the brahman feature of the absolute, and not made his or her focus is the exclusive focus of the yogi in Astanga Yoga. It's a kind of it can attain with the admixture of bhakti you can attain by kuntha in Shantarasa. Not Dasyarasa. Not half Sakyarasa, but in Shantarasa. is a big place. There are people that just meditate there. Samarta they have from the Vaikuntha perspective it's called Sayuja. From the bhakti perspective, we use sayuja differently. From the actually, I should say, from the from the Vrindavan conception, we use the word sayuja differently. Sayuja means uh, kind of a a oneness in quality with Bhagwan. And um, anyway, so they meditate on Narayan. There are souls in in, in Bhagwan that simply meditate on Narayan. If they have gone from Paramatma to Bhagwan and Narayan and attained Bhagunta, this is what they do. Hmm. There's also some kind of emerging with the Paramatma. Paramatma Sayuja is undesirable, like Brahma Sayuja is, un- is undesirable from the devotee perspective. Hmm. And it would appear that some people following the Yoga Sutras take this kind of course, which is objectionable to the devotees. But here is Krishna's 
is advocating a wholesome idea of Astanga Yoga with the admixture of bhakti that can afford real perfection in yoga. Limited from the Vrindavan perspective as it is. So it's important for us to have some understanding of Paramatma. We find in the devotee sector often um, not a very clear understanding of Paramatma. A fellow that I knew who became a, a teacher of bhakti, he put out a book called Conversations with the Paramatma years ago. And I heard it, I said, who wants to talk to the Paramatma? And they were touting it as, wow, he's talking with the Paramatma. He was a great realized person in bhakti and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's school. And I thought, was at Ruchi, the Paramatma is retired. Who wants to talk with him? What does he have to say anyway? Not much. Hmm. Mostly sleeps, and then when he wakes up, the world expands and it becomes so disconcerting to him. (laughs) He doesn't know what to do about it. Then avatars of Bhagwan start coming through him to try to remedy the situation. He watches. And to talk with Krishna, that's another thing. And he's quite talkative. He spoke gold Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> what does the Paramatma said? Have you got any books by him? Sometimes they say the guru is a manifestation of the indwelling guide, the paramatma. But in bhakti, that means the indwelling ishta of our ideal. If our ideal is Sri Krishna, then the guru in the paramat in the parampara corresponds with that ideal. Indeed, he tends to put that ideal into our hearts, awaken that ideal. Therefore, he represents Prajnanandan Krishna. He represents Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Nityananda Prabhu. Vrindavan Das wrote, Chaitanya Bhagavad said, I was ordered by Antaryami Nityananda Prabhu to write this. That means the Paramatma, the, 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 or the indwelling Lord Antaryami, for him, was Nityananda Prabhu himself. He told me to write this. So when Hanuman found Sitaram there, Vrindavan Das found in his heart, something like that. So it's important for us to uh, understand this distinction between Paramatma and Bhagavan, between Bhagavan and Swayam Bhagavan, between means Narayan and, and Sri Krishna, and to fix our ideal and then to act accordingly. It's like when you go into the shopping place and they have a map and it says, you know, all the stores here, the stores here, and the stores here, and you are here. And you've got to go like this to get over there. So you have to know where to go, and you have to know where you are on the map. Guru helps us with both these things, where to go, what what possibilities there are, and where you are, and therefore what you have to do to go there. You can't just jump there. There's a method. There's a method for seeing Krishna, and it's serving Krishna. So some agent comes to mercifully engage us in such service. And if we conduct ourselves in that service with the right spirit, then we're acting in such a way that he will want to be seen. Godhead will want to see us. This is called darshan, right? And that darshan, that is, that is samadhi, to see. So see through eyes of service. Premanjana, when the eyes are tinged with the salve of love, when service is at the foundation of love, then such seeing is possible.
So, I think we talked a bit. What time is it? Any question? Could you maybe say some more about you know, what the disciples' disposition should be in, in service to the Guru? Because you, know, you, you spoke a little bit about it. Because you know that's 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 the only way to to be seen to say it as such. Well, I think that um, the disciples should do what he or she is told in the least and in the optimum figure out what's needed without having to be told and do it that's one of the paying attention and maybe in consideration of one's capacity and so forth and situation but we should be pursuing that actively with the guru comes some kind of a mission i suppose especially in Bhakti Nod Paribar, some type of a mission, we should identify that mission with Mahaprabhu himself, his current, the current of Bhakti Vinod in the world and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in the world. And to keep that alive is kind of the ambition, I suppose you could say, of the Guru, to keep that current alive for people, to facilitate others participating in that, and keep it current. Um, and so to identify with that, I mean, the Guru wants us, for example, to chant the holy name of Krishna, to conduct ourselves like devotees, and all those things are there. We should do all those things. That's what I mean by we should do what we're told. We should chant, we should practice, and, and so forth. That's one way of understanding. Yasya prasadat bhagavat prasadu yasya prasadat Translating this, Vishwanachakrabhita means by the mercy of the Guru, one gets the mercy of Krishna. Not otherwise, Vishwanachakrabhita, we're commenting on that in one place in Bhagavad Gita. He says that my Guru has told me to do all these things, to hear, to chant, so on and so forth, so we should do those things. The other thing is that Guru may be hearing and may be chanting himself, but he may be doing other things too that he's personally concerned with, like manifesting a monastery or publishing a book or something like that. So then to become aware of all those things that are currently taking up his time and attention and then to participate in that, to become involved in that, to become interested in that. Obviously that's going to draw some interest you know, towards you. Not that interest won't be there if you do the basic idea here and chant, practice bhakti. Very good. And we don't ask anymore, but there is more. And if you develop an asking kind of spirit, desire to know, participate and so forth, then you'll find out about these things, then you can enter into that, participate in that world. This is really the way to get the attention of Krishna, more so than by the hearing and the chanting and all these things. Because Krishna likes to serve his devotees, but his devotees won't accept any service. But we could serve those devotees in terms of whatever their apparent needs may be, and then Krishna's ambition to serve them through us will be fulfilled. And certainly we'll get Krishna's attention for fulfilling an ambition that his devotees have checked him from realizing. You understand? They don't want to accept any service. But while they're fending him off, we can come in there and 
put the shoes at the door. There are your shoes. Well, who did that? You have to you get special attention for that. If the guru takes, makes attention, gives attention to you, you draw his attention, then Krishna's attention will be drawn to you. This idea, so, therefore, it's sometimes said the guru bhakti is the angi, is the anga of Krishna bhakti, which is the angi. The angi is the body and anga is the limb. So serving the guru is a limb of serving Krishna. We can't serve Krishna without acknowledging the agent through which that service has come. That would that would be unbecoming. So in that sense, serving the Guru is included within serving Krishna. When Rupa Goswami gives the limbs of bhakti, first one he says is, uh, you know, uh, I take shelter of the Guru. It's one of the limbs of bhakti. But the other way to look at it is to make bhakti the angi, the body, and service to Krishna the limb. So the new Guru Bhakti, this is, Krishna likes that very much. He says, one who says he's a devotee of my devotee is not my devotee. No one who says he's, excuse me, one who says he's my devotee is not my devotee. But one who says he's a devotee of my devotee, well, he's my devotee. Something like that. Yeah, and you also find that those things that the Guru is interested in are pretty interesting things. And, yeah, it's a whole world of an exciting life, yeah. You mentioned the the Dawkins, Mr. Dawkins, mm-hmm. and his uh, book uh, God Illusion or Delusion. God Delusion, yeah. Um, it's a little old now. Yeah, uh, that book I, I saw it was like one of the top sellers uh, in Sweden, I suppose in America too. And also in Sweden we have this uh, humanistic society. Recently had this like big campaign. Uh, that said, like, God might not exist. And you could go into the website and test yourself if, if you really are a believer of God. And uh, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, just when you mentioned that, Dawkins, that, well, why is this coming? This, where is this coming from? This need to, I don't know, go against uh, the, the idea of God? And well, to be honest with you, to a large extent, it's coming from to be um, generous with with a person like Mr. Dawkins, it's coming from a um, misrepresentation of God that has turned a lot of people off, understandably. And that's what he attacks in his book, kind of fundamentalist religious orientation, which has very little to do with religion, so it has not, doesn't have much to do with us. Of course, the people don't know about the heart of religion and esoteric uh, orientation to spiritual orientation and experiential orientation. They're attacking this idea of some God sitting on a cloud and you work, act in a certain way throughout your whole life and never see him and die and you're supposed to go there and so forth. What we're talking about is experiencing God now. And if you had the experience, then it doesn't matter how many Richard Dawkins write how many books, then there's no... <laughs> there's no you know, there's no changing. A student of mine wrote me, and, and uh, he was asking about some deities that I was going to, we were going to install in Madhavan. And uh, the, the little deities that are there now of, of Krishna Balaram were at Audarya from the Govardhan Shilas. And um, 
years ago that disciple was visiting the temple and they gave him a special darshan. So I always remember that. And so I pointed that out to him and said, oh, you remember that? Oh, that, that happened in my experience. He said, yes, I know all about that experience. And I told him, uh, I said, and, and one experience like that, see, that will hold you forever, in a, in the, at least in the ballpark of theism and Krishna consciousness, you, you can't get out. And I said, in my life, this is like full of those experiences. It's like made of those experiences. It's an ongoing experience. So there's no change in me. And no matter how many books you could write about how well-reasoned and whatnot, if you have experience, then, then they can reason, well, what is that experience? Something going on in the brain. It's shifting in this way, and that's what the mystic experience. And you can reason like that all you want and relativize that as long as you don't have the experience. As soon as you have the experience, that'll be another thing. Like we put the video up on the harmonist of that lady who had the had the, had a stroke. Maybe you saw it. She had a stroke. She was a, I think, a neuroscientist or something like that. You know, researching the brain and consciousness and so forth was her thing, and she had a stroke. And in the stroke, certain aspect of her brain was stopped functioning, and the other side that becomes active or whatever in mysticism was like turned on. And so she had a whole otherworldly type of experience. And as she spoke about it, 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 it sounds like the experience of the mystics and so forth and, she, and, and so on. And so then you start to think about it, and then someone may think, well, well, I guess it's just, you know, you could just change the brain circuitry, and there's your mysticism, see? There's nothing to it than that. But um, what happened to her is it changed her whole life. She got saved. Her life was, she was dysfunctional in other ways. By yoga, you can go there and remain functional, and you can stay there. She went for a few minutes and became dysfunctional, in other words, I had some similar type of experience, but it, it changed her whole life. She's now a total spiritual advocate. She has meetings and places. and She's just trying to recapture that experience, basically. So total experience, experience of being identified with everything and, and, uh, and some remote sense of like giving and universal love and so forth. It was so profound for her. She's spending her whole life chasing after that experience. If you could say, well, I'd turn it on with a switch, we, we hook you up and you can have the experience. They're going to, in the future, they're going to make booths and you can just plug in, let's say, and you get that experience. And they were going to say that to you by way of saying, so, you know, what is it? Just an experience. But if you get the experience, you'll keep going in that booth. <laughs> you'll stay plugged in. Nobody will come out of the booth. Hmm? That's what the people who haven't had the experience don't realize. So they can talk about it and analyze it and make it out to be one thing or another, and, and it's interesting, and so forth and so on. But have the experience. Just don't touch with that. There's nothing. That's what the Bhagavad Gita says. Nothing like this. It's, it's ecstasy. It means it's, 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 it's a stepping outside of oneself. And out, out from underneath the, the oppression of the mind and the senses to, to feel your, what you are. And all, and what comes with it? All these feelings of seeing the equality of others, and all these extraordinary godly qualities, and so forth. People want to be like that, so make those machines as you know, quick as possible. They'll be 
It's a big money maker. People will be putting their quarters in there and they'll be staying in there. <laughs> but yoga, why we need that? Yoga is a method for going there and remaining functional in the world at the same time and staying there. And it doesn't cost even a quarter. So we're teaching how to experience God. We're not teaching how to believe in God. And that's the difference, and that's something that hasn't been addressed. Another fellow, uh, uh, Sam Harris, who wrote a book, The End of Faith, he's one of these fellows like Hawk and Dawkins and Hitchens and, and um, who's the other one? Dennett. These four fellows, they came out of this fundamentalist, atheistic, atheistic fundamentalism, I guess you could call it campaign, kind of a militant campaign for, for atheism. And it's very short-sighted in terms of the way in which it analyzes God. It's, it, it, it's not, it, is, it shows no real acquaintance with theology. And, and a huge contribution that theology and saints have made to the world. It's huge. It's, it's immense. And to boil it down to, and to, to dismiss all of that and reduce the influence of God in the world to the negative influence from people who have misunderstood God and gone to war for religion, for example, is, a, is, is, is pathetic to think you've written a book and done away with, the, you know, the, I guess he's, he's revealed the delusion about God, but he hasn't, hasn't talked about the, the reality of, of God. So anyway, Sam Harris, he, he wrote a, a book along the same lines, just really attacking fundamentalist religion. I saw it in the bookstore a few years back, and I picked it up and opened it. And of course, I just happened to open to the page that was about mysticism at the end of the book. Just landed there. And, then, and so after he'd written the whole book, he wrote this few paragraphs and pages about mysticism, Eastern mysticism, and said, this is a different thing altogether. And this is talking about real experience, and it's and he, and he called it um, kind of almost like scientific or something. In other words, there was a method, and you do it, and you get the experience, and so forth. And I kind of chuckle because I mean that's really what the heart of all religious traditions is about. Whether it be your esoteric Christians or the Sufis in Islam or the um, Vedantins in, in Hinduism and so forth, they're they're they're, they're um, this is the heart of religion. This is what it's really about. All he dismissed was what religion is not about. And in the end, he had some embrace and recognition and acknowledgement of the heart of any religious or spiritual tradition. So he kind of like shot himself in the foot, in, in a sense. So they anyway, they haven't really dealt with mysticism. And, and when you try to deal with mysticism, then you come into neuroscience, what is consciousness? And the sense of consciousness has two aspects. It's a sense of, it's the one which they study largely is, is its ability to perceive, perceptions. And then the other is, which they don't study much, is the sense of I, that I am, that we have. I-ness, I call it. So in, in the realm of science, this is, they're absolutely nowhere near understanding what consciousness is. They have theories about it and they have some fine correlations between things in the brain and the mind and so forth. But a correlation is one thing. 
doesn't make them the same. So they want to make mind and brain the same and, and consciousness mind. So anyway, so it's a, it's a huge field and uh, that should be brought out, I suppose. And that's where you'll find science and religion finding some common ground, actually. Like I said once before, science was born as a Christian. Science as we know it today took birth as a Christian. Newton was a Christian. Um, Descartes was a Christian. In Catholic scholasticism in Europe, this is where you know the Industrial Revolution, the Scientific Revolution took, took birth as a Christian. Science took birth as a Christian, gradually it started to grow up and it became an agnostic. Now it's become an atheist and eventually will become a mystic. So there is some touch, some, some common, common ground there. And if you look deeply at science, you find it's mystical. And it's just an exploration of a mystery that will never be solved. How big is the universe? How many universes are there? What are the laws of nature in this universe? Are there other universes? What would the laws be like there? I mean, what can go on in the human brain as far as thinking is just so minuscule. <laughs> it's just funny to think about how much importance we, we give to it. Figuring things out, but there's a. I mean, the Prabhupada used to give an example, and it's it's a kind of condescending, I suppose it might be seen in a way, but it's really a, quite accurate. I mean, when you talk about the frog in the well, and the, one frog had gone to see the ocean, he came back to tell the other frog who was living in the well what the ocean was like. The little frog in the ocean says, "Well, how big is it? Is it, is it twice as big as my well?" So it's three times bigger, four times bigger. He's trying to expand himself, and then he just burst. You know, something like that. So how can somebody who only understands a well understand the ocean? We're trying to you know, still figure out ourselves, what's the of the whole world, the whole natural world. Anyway, what else? Another question? Yes. Uh, you said, Maharaj, yesterday that... Um, Krishna, as Fayam Bhagavan, is very like a human-like form of God. That it, it is very close to to human. And I, I also heard in one of the lectures that uh, after the end of the Lila on the earth, Krishna stayed in his original form in Vrindavan. So, um, it's quite difficult for me to understand. It seems that uh, um, this place, Vrindavan here, or this material world, in some say, uh, in some way, is more like complete than uh, the spiritual world, because if Krishna is here in his religion. Mm -hmm. You want to understand that better? Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very esoteric point of of the Goswamis. They give precedence to the manifestation of Krishna's Leela in this world over the unmanifest uh, expression of the Leela. And um, they do so for different reasons. The main reason is because it's more, has more Madhurya. Madhurya means sweetness. Without Madhurya, there's no Bhakti. There has to be some sweetness. 
Otherwise, there's no bhakti. So even in Bhaikuntha, there's some sweetness. What is the sweetness of Bhaikuntha? For example, Narayan eats. Does God need to eat? No. Right? But he does. That's sweetness. That means you understand? He's, he's not acting like God. When God doesn't act like God, but acts more like, like a human, that's sweet. Then that makes him accessible. Then you can offer him food. So the more there is sweetness, madhurya, factored into the conception of Godhead, the more opportunity there is for bhakti. So Krishna is full madhurya. But in his aprakat lila, his unmanifest lila, it's called the deva lila. It's not, it's lacking in madhurya in comparison to his manifestation of the lila within human society. That's super madhurya. For example, in the Goloka, there is Vatsalya Bhakti. You understand? Vatsalya Bhakti. Mother Yashoda has the love of Krishna like, like a mother for a son. Hmm. But Krishna never takes birth there. His Leela is Kishore, Nitya Kishore. So he's always an adolescent. He's never taking birth. So to, so to what extent then is motherhood experienced by a mother who never saw her son take birth. Not as full, I mean, when, it's, when, a, when, it's, when a mother gives birth to a son or a daughter, first child, this is a life-transforming kind of experience. It's almost like a spiritual experience. Something else is being born out of me. It's like, wow, it's really esoteric. <laughs> it's an extraordinary thing. Motherhood is a super extraordinary thing. So in the Leela that Krishna performs in this world, he actually takes birth. That's incredible. That's how, how human-like it is. That's just one example. So because the Madhurya is increased, then the accessibility is also increased. And in that way it excels. After all, Rupa Goswami's analysis of the Godhead is in terms of accessibility, in terms of rasa, sweetness, and the capacity to, to make connection with him. That's why they have given some precedent to the Boma Vrindavan, the manifest Leela in, in this world. It's said that the souls in Golok, they always want to come to the Gokul Leela. And at Gokul, those who are passing through to enter the Lila, they always want to go to Golok. <laughs> so then once they go there, then they want to... But these are very esoteric things. It's also an emphasis on... It's also there, to one extent, to put an emphasis on the world and the fact that Bodhivashtanism is not world-denying, but world-embracing, but in an appropriate way, with appropriate understanding of what the world is. Not about going anywhere something like that. But it is about changing our angle of vision as to where we are and what we can see. Does that help? Shri Bhagavad Gita ki jai, Guru Vaishnava Guru Parampara ki jai, Gaur Bhaktavrinda ki jai, Gaur Premanandai.